Let's pray. Uh, I know we already have, but uh, I need more. Heavenly Father, we come before your word, Lord, giving thanks that we can, we can approach, approach your truths, Lord, at one time that would have been scary, uh, one time that would have, uh, Lord, been something that sounded harsh and, and judge, filled with judgment, but now brings life. Now is truth to be lived by, sets us free. Heavenly Father, as we hear your word this morning, I pray, Lord, that it would meet us uh, where we're at, that you would speak to us. More than anything, that you would meet us where we're at and bring us to you. Help us to be able to understand more of how to live in this world and how to look into the next one, Lord, through your eyes. And to have our perspectives shifted rather than seeking to change yours. Give us the ears to be able to hear what we need, both as a church and individually. And Lord, let your name be praised this morning and in our hearing. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, <clears throat> in preparing uh, for this message, I read... Uh, a portion of a book written by Stephen McAlpine. This book is called Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says That You Shouldn't. He wrote, I'm guessing that in the past year or so, you've had a conversation with a non-Christian that didn't go well. You've overheard or you've overheard a discussion between work colleagues expressing their anger over Christian views on a particular issue. Or you've read or watched a piece of media taking pot shots at biblical ethics and you've wondered to yourself something like this. You mean we're the bad guys? How, when and why did this happen? McAlpine points out helpfully in Christian history, at least in the West, Christianity was seen as a good thing, a favourable thing. The people that followed Jesus were a blessing to have around and morality was taught publicly and upheld as unquestionable. And culture and law and political structure favoured the Christian. And then something changed in the 20th century. Christianity shifted from being the only option to being one of many options, suddenly up for grabs. And at this stage, we were no longer the good guys. We were one of the guys, one of the many options that could be taken up. But even then, there was a respect. You could have one opinion, I could have another, and we can still be friends. We can still hear one another. Sadly, this state too is now history, it appears. In our current cultural climate, Christianity is no longer an option. It has become a problem. At this stage, we're no longer the good guys or just one of the many guys. We are now the bad guys and becoming more so. Different opinions, uh, sorry. Rather than being for Christianity, or at least respecting Christianity, culture, law, and politics now seem to be trained against us. We are not the good guys anymore. 
And the church in the West has begun to feel this. Our numbers of professing Christians and people coming to the faith is diminishing. People staying in the faith when they've been raised in it is diminishing. Kids leaving around university ages. Responses that we get from the example we had before from McAlpine, from our neighbours, from our co-worker, from media, now seem to be overblown in their harshness towards our point of view. The question then that comes to mind is, how can we survive? How can we survive? How will our children and our grandchildren survive in a world that becomes more hostile towards Christianity. This morning we're going to look at the book of Hebrews in our current series, Glorious Humanity. And it couldn't be a more fitting book for our own predicament. This is the words of Kent Hughes as he just gives a brief description of the Hebrew church. The writer, who was the author of the letter, is doing his best in this section to comfort the afflicted in the beleaguered little church. The illusion of insignificance has wrapped its cold fingers around many of their hearts and they feel like they are an unwanted speck among the millions of the Roman Empire. Does that sound familiar? Is it beginning to feel familiar? The recipients of the book of Hebrews are, in fact, a little further down the track than what the church in the West is. In Hebrews 10, we read a description of the church, that they have endured hardship and sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and to a persecution, or being partnered with people that are. Some have been put in prison and others having their property and their possessions plundered and taken from them. And they, like many in the church today, are wondering, how do we survive? That little church being pastored in Hebrews has begun to wonder if it would instead be easier just to be one of the good guys again to be called a good guy, seen a good guy in our current climate, and in doing so, to back off of their Christian belief that are causing so much of the offence, that are making life so difficult, and instead embrace what the world wants to hear. For them, the Roman Empire. And so the author of Hebrews writes this letter, a truly pastoral letter, to this struggling church. And where does he turn them? To look, to survive. Where does he go to offer comfort to that struggling little church? He takes them to look at the Son. He speaks first of Christ and his superiority over the angels in chapter 1. Now, angels were understood by the Jews to be the governing forces of the world. An understanding that comes from Deuteronomy 32.8, which says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all of mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. 
and the sons of Israel, or in other translations, the sons of God or gods with a lowercase g, meaning the angels. And we see something of this in Daniel 10, where angels are designated as the prince of Persia or the prince of Greece or Michael the archangel being called the great prince who watches over Israel's people. So the angels were seen by this small Jewish church as the governors of the earth, held in a position of great power that extended over mankind. And yet, the Son of God, that is Jesus, the Hebrew writer wants them to know is so much more superior than them. Jesus is, the chapter 1 says, the voice of the Lord. He is the heir of all things, the creator of the universe, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He sustains all things. And now, after having purified, uh, provided purification from sin, he sits enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he is called the Son of God, with a capital S. None of the angels' works, all their power, all their authority, even as governors of this world, is comparable to Jesus. He is superior in every way. And this is the, question, the answer to the question that sits on their minds. How am I to survive? Look at Jesus. Do you want to survive? The author says. Do you want to survive not just this season of persecution, but this world and the judgment that follows? Here is the answer. The beginning of chapter 2, pay careful attention to the gospel. Do not drift away from it. The author of the letter encourages, even with a slightly pointy stick at this point, pay careful attention to the good news about Jesus. Because there is no salvation outside of the great salvation that he offers. The author reveals incredible truths at this point to the church. And they're helpful for us. They are like reading one of those kids' books where you see one image at the start and then you pull a tab or you open a flap and the full picture is revealed as it's really meant to be. The current trouble of the church of being persecuted, put in jail and property plundered is all that they can see at their first glance. And it is overwhelming. And their salvation, they see, is to turn away from the gospel. But that is not the trouble or the salvation. The author unfolds the picture and reveals what the true trouble is or what the real risk is. It's in drifting away from the salvation of Jesus. There is no greater concern, no greater trouble spoken of in the Bible than to ignore the salvation God offers to his people. For Jesus, 
is so much greater even than the angels, so much greater than any trouble that could ever come upon the church. If you have him, as great as he is, persecution of any sort suffered in this world becomes small. But if you get caught up in believing that the greatest trouble you'll face is persecution and the greatest salvation laying aside Christ, then we're in trouble. But how? How will seeing Jesus as all that he is in that first chapter, as glorious as he is, help us to survive? The author says in the verses that we read this morning that believers will soon become so big, so lifted up in glory through Jesus and with him that our suffering will appear minuscule. Christians will be elevated to a position of authority over the new world. Verse 5, the author brings up this idea of a new world. The place that comes after this one. The one that is absent from sin and curse and everything is restored and is perfect. But who will have dominion in this world? To whom will it be subject? The angels? At first glance, we might expect the angels to take this role. It's the same role that they had in this world. Why not the next? But it is not the angels that God has subjected the world to come, the author says. And then he quotes a psalm that we have become increasingly familiar with over the last few weeks. Psalm 8, a psalm where the psalmist himself feels small, not because of the persecution that he's suffering, but because as he gazes at the vast size of creation, at the moon and the stars, he wonders, what is man that you are mindful of him? And yet, he also realises that he is large, because he has been created with a crown of glory that rests upon his head. A role given by God to have loving dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that moves on the land. Twice it says in verse 8, following the psalm, that God put everything under them in subjection to them. Twice it says so that we don't miss what is being said, what God's created intention for humanity was. And yet the author is taking Psalm 8 not as a glance backwards to created glory, one that was lost, but as a way of looking forwards to what is to come, as a preview of the world to come, that we will have the same role in the new world and yet even greater because there will be no submission to the angels. A position where we may be small again physically in comparison to the creation of God, and yet great in terms of the glory that he has given us, in terms of significance and the authority 
that God gives us in grace. But, or yet, is knowing that we will one day have a position of glory in the new world enough to encourage the church? Is it enough to help them survive the current age and to remain faithful? The answer appears to be no. It's not enough because we do not yet see all things in submission to us. We do not yet see it. This little church was being persecuted as being followers of the Lord. They were being mocked and waylaid in the streets. Their things were being stolen from them. Some were unjustly put in jail because of their faith. And this was the experience that they had of not seeing everything in subjection to them. Remember the, fear, the, the description we received from Kent Hughes. They felt small, insignificant, not as a position of authority. And yet, as this is true in the small and immediate scale of the church, it's true for humanity in a larger scale as well. As we suffer things like war and starvation and pandemics and droughts and earthquakes, all of which show that not all things are subject to us. And yet, if we were to boil all of this trouble down to distill it, what would we find? Verse 14 and 15, outside of our reading this morning, tell us of the great affliction of humanity. It's not earthquakes or sickness. It's our bondage to death and our fear of death that is the great affliction. It is what grips the hearts of men and women daily, most of the time when we are unaware of it. And even when we become aware of it, to suppress it and live on. And yet it is the rot that remains in our bones. Now, I'm not a great reader of Tolstoy. I want to say that because I'm about to quote him and it makes me sound like I'm really well read. <clears throat> I'm not. I stole this quote. But it shows well the impact of the fear of death upon a man. I could give no reasonable meaning to any single action or to my whole life. I was only surprised that I could have avoided understanding this from the very beginning. It has been so long known to all. Today or tomorrow, sickness and death will come. They had come already to those I love or to me. Nothing will remain but stench and worms. Sooner or later, my affairs, whatever they may be, will be forgotten and I shall not exist. Then why go on making any effort? How can man fail to see this? How can, uh, and how go on living? 
That is what is surprising. Only, uh, one can only live while one is intoxicated with life. As soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that it is all mere fraud and a stupid fraud. That is precisely what it is. There is nothing either amusing or witty about it. It is simply cruel and stupid. No matter how often I may be told, you cannot understand the meaning of life, so do not think about it, but live. I can no longer do it. I have already done it too long. I cannot now help seeing day and night going round and bringing me to death. That is all I see, for that alone is true. All else is false. Here is a man that saw at least a glimpse of the bondage of death that rests upon all of humanity. And he felt small and he felt inconsequential to it. Just as the church of Hebrews did in their persecution, just as we are coming to grips with in our church in the West, And so we do not see all things in subjection to man because of the reign of death. Then verse 8 and 9 come about. We don't see all things in subjection to humanity, but we do see Jesus. Remember again what we heard of Jesus in the first chapter that of being superior to the angels in all things. And then we read what the author first says of him. He says he was made lower than the angels. Something pointing to him being incarnate as man. Lower than the angels being the very description given in Psalm 8 to describe us at creation. To describe us as we were intended to be before death took hold. Before it entered the picture, having all things in subjection to him. The author encourages the church that while they cannot see themselves in, a pos- in this position, that they are intended to be at the very beginning, they can see Jesus there in that position of perfect, of the perfect and glorious man, the second Adam, that fulfilled all the righteous requirements of being a perfect man, and who is described as being crowned with glory. Again, words that are used to describe God's original intended creation for us. But his crown, Hebrews reads, is a little different. His is the only crown of glory that has ever been earned rather than given. Our crown was given out of grace and created intention. Jesus' crown, it says, came because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
Now, tasting death is more than taking a sample of it. As we saw in the kids' story, more than a small sip or going to an ice cream parlour and tasting some. He consumed it all. He took it all, suffered it all. Until there was none left. And it was fitting, we read. Fitting in the eyes of our God who created all things. Established the boundaries of creation and the natural laws of this world. It was fitting in his eyes that Jesus should suffer like this. For in doing so, he became for us in his humanity the perfect pioneer, the captain of our faith. In suffering and overcoming death, he made a way for us to live. He became the way for us to live. By which believers will come into the new world through his death and into his life. The perfect way. So when we see him, rather than seeing ourselves, we see everything in subjection to him. We see him as the captain of our great salvation now in glory. And we see the fear of death that, we hold, that holds over us come to an end. A sure and certain hope of our position in the world that is to come. And we see humanity's role being fulfilled and lifted up in Jesus. And as we see him there in glory, he says something of us. He calls us brother or sister. Even while we are in our current state, struggling at times with coming to grips with these truths that we've spoken of even now, and the myriad of the impacts of fear and death upon us, yet he calls to his church and to his people, brother and sister, without an ounce of shame. How the shame, how shame still afflicts the church. Shame that we are failing, shame of how we are seen by one another, shame of how we see ourselves, shame with how God would see us. It's one of the great weapons that is forged of death and wielded by the evil one. And it was shame that first afflicted Adam and Eve in the garden and had them hiding from one another and from the Lord. Shame that stopped them from calling out to him and having relationship with him. Yet now we see Jesus, after having made purification for sin and defeating death, crowned with glory, calling to us, brother, sister, without shame. This is a part of the encouragement and the freedom the author wants the church to hear.
what we need to hear and to know. In looking at Jesus, he is not ashamed of you because of what he has done. And he calls us back into relationship with him. With the strongest of those relational terms, family. This is our glory, reunited with God. So how can we survive the suffering of this present age? Look at Jesus. Look at him and see how he is crowned with glory. Look at him and see how he has defeated death. Look at him and see how he did it as a perfect man, a perfect captain of our salvation. Look at him and see him call you brother or sister without an ounce of shame. And when you look at him, see how small jail time becomes. How small the plundering of property becomes in comparison. Now, we may feel insignificant and unwanted now, but as that picture unfolds, we get to see what is really happening here. It's not the church that is insignificant. Not by far. Who will remember the Roman Empire or the persecution of the West when reigning over the new world in glory with Christ? Closing with just the first few verses from Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. And he scoffs at them and he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, what a change in perspective your word gives us. What a way of revealing where we really stand in this world and in the world to come. Lord, to take the things and the the sufferings that we endure at this moment that seem so large, so all-consuming, Lord, and to suddenly find them so small in comparison to your Son, in comparison to to where you are taking us in glory. Lord God, I pray more than anything, Father, that for each one of us, we would have your wisdom, Lord, to see the world as you see it, to perceive it through the lens of the gospel, of Jesus sitting at the right hand 
of the majesty on high, crowned with glory as a man. Our hope and our certainty of the future. And to see ourselves, Lord, there with him, being called brother or sister. Father, if there are those here this morning, myself included, Lord, that struggle for this to sink deeply and to mean more than mere words, Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work, revealing your truth to us in the moments and the days and the hours to come, Lord, in the conversations had after. Let these things hold true for us, Father. Thank you for your word. In your name, amen.